0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Electrify This, a podcast focused on the movement to electrify everything as a key strategy to decarbonize and revitalize all sectors of our economy. Each month, I connect with experts to explore the policy and market issues underpinning the shift to electrified transportation, buildings, and industry. I'm your host, Sarah Baldwin, Director of Electrification Policy with Energy Innovation. Today's episode, The Road to Clean Electrified Transportation, State and Federal Pathways, the final episode in our three-part series. On the last episode, we discussed some of the federal policy plays needed to achieve a clean grid and a clean electrified transportation system in the coming decades. Today, we're going to explore state and federal activities underway that impact the transportation sector, as well as the strategies to advance cleaner vehicle standards, which are key to reducing transportation pollution from new cars and trucks and increasing the availability of new electric vehicle models in the market. I'm honored to be joined by two experts with a breadth of experience advancing clean transportation rules and policies. First, we have Margot O'Gay, chair of the International Council on Clean Transportation and a former director of the Office of Transportation and Air Quality at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Margot's had an impressive 32-year career with the EPA, and during her 18-year tenure as director... Margot was the chief architect of numerous programs that reduced emissions from gas and diesel-fueled automobiles, trucks, and off-road vehicles by up to 99%. She led EPA's development of the first-ever National Greenhouse Gas Emission Standards for cars and heavy-duty trucks and helped establish the Renewable Fuels Standard. Margot is also a distinguished fellow with the Climate Works Foundation and a member of numerous boards and advisory committees. Margot, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me, Sarah.
0: It's great to have you. And next we have Anjali Baines, Senior Clean Transportation Manager at Fresh Energy, which is a St. Paul, Minnesota based clean energy and climate nonprofit that advocates for policies to accelerate Minnesota's transition to a zero emissions economy by 2050. At Fresh Energy, Anjali leads the electric transportation program, advocating in the state legislature, regulatory arenas, and other decision-making bodies as a technical expert in issues ranging from clean car standards to utility EV programs. Anjali, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Great. Well, I am excited to speak with you both, and I am really excited to learn from each of you. You guys bring different perspectives and backgrounds on this topic And uh, with that in mind, we're going to dive in and get started. So, Margot, as I mentioned, you've worked at the EPA, uh, or you worked at the EPA for 32 years and served as the Director of the Office of Transportation and Air Quality. Tell us a little bit more about some of those key accomplishments and what you did there. So,
1: so Sarah, you did uh, cover a lot of the accomplishments. Um, As you said, I was with EPA for 32 years. Uh, the last 18 years, I was the director of the Office of Transportation and Air Quality. Uh, this is the office that sets federal uh, regulations and policies to reduce emissions from everything that moves and pollutes, from cars to trucks, airplanes, um, lawnmowers, um, and so forth. And um, and one thing that I wanted to say, you talk, you really uh, uh, talk about my accomplishments. Uh, really, whatever I have done as the director of the Environmental Protection Agency was the result of working uh, with the most uh, extraordinary, talented, amazing, uh, committed, and hard-working individuals. And, you know, I served under five different um, administrations, Republicans, uh, Democrats, and um, <laughs> despite the fact that some of these administrations were not very friendly uh, to environmental policies, I woke up every morning um, and I was excited to go to work because I knew I was making a difference and uh, cleaning the environment and working with the best people. And one more thing to say that people don't realize is that, um, you know, we're all, you know, when we, you work for the federal government or even the state government, you're called a bureaucrat. Uh, some, pe- some congressmen have called me a faceless bureaucrat. But the truth of the matter is that people that, uh, you know, commit themselves um, to a public health, um, environmental service at the state, local, and federal level, uh, they really want to make a difference. So despite uh, the resistance that we um, we had when I was working at EPA from, you know, regulated industry, the politics of the White House and Congress, I was just amazed uh, that we were able to, work in every morning work around the clock and accomplish as much as we accomplish so uh, uh it has been an absolute honor uh, to have been a public servant
0: absolutely well that is quite a quite an esteemed and accomplished career and Kudos for lasting that long. (laughs) I think that's a testament to your perseverance, no doubt. Um, So, you know, one of the things we want to dive into today and and help our listeners understand a little better is EPA's authority over vehicle emission standards and the role that they play in forging a path to clean electric transportation. So tell us a little bit more about that and and feel free to give us that background.
1: So the... The EPA and the work that we did when I was at EPA, regulating all the modes of transportation, along with off-road equipment and fuels. Uh, it, most of it is derived from what from a section that's called 202, and it's a, and it's an, an extraordinary statute because it provides flexibility to the agency to set some of the most powerful, um, effective. Uh, Standards and policies. Uh, and just to give you an example, when I was at EPA for 18 years, we put a number of programs together. Together, we were able to prevent something like 40,000 premature deaths on an al- annual basis, um, and millions of respiratory um, illness were prevented. So it comes from the Clean Air Act, it goes back to the beginning of the agency. Uh, and, and the Clean Air Act has been uh, revised and amended a number of times. The biggest revision was the 1990 Clean Air Act that, along many other things, allows states that have serious um, air pollution to be able to adapt the California standards, which is, has been a pretty um, big deal and also very helpful to the federal government. So so basically, uh, there are a few things that we have to demonstrate. And I'm going to make it very simple. Okay. So the first thing that the statute requires is that EPA makes a finding that the pollutant under consideration, and let's talk about greenhouse gases, these pollutants, under consideration will endanger public health or the environment, and or the environment. So EPA, you're going to regulate pollutants, you, want to, you have to demonstrate uh, that there is a need to that if you don't move forward with regulating those pollutants, there's going to be an impact to public health and environment. And there is nothing more than that. So it doesn't say that the impact has to be extraordinary, it has to be small, it has to be medium. It, that's, this is the language that, that the statute has. Just to give you an example, uh, we regulated snowmobiles for the for, for missiles from snowmobiles. And we were challenged uh, because I think the impact to to ozone was something like less than a percent or one percent, I don't remember, (laughs) decades ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, And basically the courts said, um, you know, it's very clear that the Clean Air Act allow EPA to regulate pollution that endangers public health. So when it comes to greenhouse gases, I don't have, you know, it doesn't take an an awful lot of effort to demonstrate that greenhouse gas emissions from all sectors, especially the transportation sector, that is the number one sector contributing the most for carbon pollution, should be regulated. So the first step is for the EPA to demonstrate the need uh, for taking an action. Uh, The second step that we typically do uh, for all regulations is to basically evaluate a number of technologies that will be available to the industry when the regulations or the standards are implemented. So the Clean Air Act is a technology-forcing statute. So, for example, if we're going to set greenhouse gas standards today for 2030, and we're going to consider technologies and the cost of those technologies and feasibility and cost. We're not considering the cost today. We're considering when the standards will be in place, which will be, let's say, 2030. So so, so it's a future-looking statue. Uh, the third thing uh, that uh, the agency has to do is to consider lead time. So if we... You know, Push forward a very aggressive set of regulations. Uh, we're going to give sufficiently time for the industry to invest and also to innovate. And the final, the final element that is not really in the statute but is mostly an executive order that came under President Reagan uh, in 19, during the 80s is for the agency to do a cost-benefit analysis. So. So, so again, to give you an example, when when I was at EPA, we did a cost benefit analysis of this major rules set that you mentioned, reducing emissions from cars, locomotives, ocean going vessels, off road equipment, uh, and the over, So when we evaluated the were all costs and benefits. The cost was about the benefit was one to fifteen. To give you another example for to you and also the the listeners. Uh, Under President Obama, we took steps to, for the first time, to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from cars, Uh, and the cost, the annual cost for those standards, were about eight billion dollars, eight zero. Where the benefits, the annual benefits, were close to forty billion dollars, four zero billion dollars. So this, this is how the statute um, works. So, for the greenhouse gases, there is a historic um, finding by the Supreme Court in 2007 that basically determined that greenhouse gases should be considered, are considered pollutants under the Clean Air Act, and EPA should regulate emissions from vehicles, personal vehicles, if, if they endanger public health and environment. And obviously, we made that finding. Um, with, uh, under President Obama, the finding was challenged. Uh, it was appealed all the way to the Supreme Court, and it survived. So the bottom line is that the Clean Air Act is a powerful statute. Uh, President Biden and the Environmental Protection Agency, does not, they don't have to go to Congress and seek new authority. They can use the existing Clean Air Act to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. From the transportation sector and
0: off-road equipment. That's really helpful. And uh, you mentioned uh, one thing. I just want to f- come back to, which we're actually going to talk with Anjali about, and that is, individual states have the authority and ability to exceed federal standards and and kind of go their own path if if they are um, if they're able to make that determination at the state level. So we're excited to talk about that with Anjali here in a minute, but um, so the EPA obviously has this authority under the Clean Air Act, and the rulemaking process to set these standards that you've talked about takes a long time. There's a lot of research and background analysis and and cost-effectiveness studies that have to happen, so tell us a little bit more about that process as well as uh, what we can expect under President Biden's EPA right now on cars and trucks.
1: Uh, so, Sarah, you know, I, I don't want to make it very simple that EP, there is this Clean Air Act <laughs> and EPA is implementing it because there there are a bunch of hardworking people. Clearly, that's the case. But to undertake any of these major regulations, there is a lot of work that needs to be done. Just to give you an example, um, you know, when we set the first uh, greenhouse gas standards um, under President Obama for cars... Uh, we have engineers and scientists, um, uh, uh, people that we have hired from industry, from universities, uh, with tremendous experience in, in, in cars and trucks and fuel. Uh, they took apart a number of engines to cost out thousands of little parts. For example, um, what is the cost of a hybrid technology versus the cost of a similar vehicle that doesn't have uh, a hybrid? It's just an and, and that, uh, uh, internal combustion engine. So it takes uh, a lot of effort uh, 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 to, do, to do that, and uh, a lot of legal analysis. So, and, it, and after EPA makes a, a proposal, um, then it goes out for public comments. Um, uh, very often the public comments would be anywhere from 30 to 60, sometimes 90 days. And then the agency has just carefully review public comments. Um, When it was at EPA for major regulations, we received tens of thousands of of comments. So we have to respond to each of the comments um, and the position that the agency has taken and why. And if the response is not properly uh, demonstrated that EPA is right, uh, then we can, and we don't take um, the comment into consideration changing the proposal. The agency can be uh, litigated based on um, uh, within due due process. So there is a lot of effort that is going to put these these regulations in place. So let's talk about uh, what we should expect from President Biden and and, and EPA. Uh, and as we you know, uh, President Biden has been absolutely the most has the most absolutely the most ambitious climate agenda more so than, than any other president. And, and President Biden has made climate change the centerfold of his administration. You know, President Bob Obama, he really cared about climate change, but really climate change did not become as important during his administration as the first part of his administration. It became a big issue of the second part of his administration. So President Biden gave... Uh, uh, a bunch of um, executive orders, I don't remember how many, the first day he walked into the office, and one of these uh, executive orders was to the Environmental Protection Agency in and NHTSA. And, and it was twofold. The first was to restore uh, the California authority. This is the action that President Trump had taken to basically take away uh, the authority uh, that California has had for for 50 years, even before EPA started regulating emissions from from vehicles. So that was the first uh, um, uh, direct, directive. The second directive was for EPA and NHTSA to take a look at the rollback uh, that took place of the Clean Car Program, the 2025 Clean Car Program under President Trump, and restore. Or evaluate how to restore that program. So, both of them are very um, uh, powerful uh, executive orders. Um, we did see both agencies proposing uh, to restore the California authority, that was NITA uh, and EPA, to address the California waiver. And, end of July, um, we, we expect uh, that uh, EPA and NITA. Uh, will address uh, the Obama uh, clean car program and there are a lot of rumors what EPA is going to do um, you know is EPA going to adapt the, the program that the state of California um, worked with with four or five you know major car manufacturers is EPA going to adapt the Obama program uh, uh, is it going to be more ambitious than the Obama program? My expectation, um, Sarah, is that what we're going to see is a proposal from EPA that will affect years 2023 to 2026, and my expectation is it will be uh, slightly more ambitious uh, than the California program, Uh, but again, you know, this is a great first action, but by itself, Uh, it it falls very short of what U.S. uh, has to do uh, to fight climate change and reduce greenhouse gas emissions from the transportation sector, you know, the largest contributor of climate change. So personally, um, what I would like to see from from the White House is when EPA makes the announcement for addressing um, the Obama Clean Car Program, that president directs the agency to work with NHTSA and to commit to a regulation that will go beyond 2025 and 2026. Uh, What really um, we should be doing, what the White House should be doing, is to be setting a regulation at least to 2030. My hope is to 2035 that phases out the use of the internal combustion engine, gasoline and diesel engines for cars. So ideally, 2030, there should be a regulation that pushes um, zero-emitting technologies, fuel cells or or, or electric vehicles, 50 to 60%. And by 2035, uh, all new sales of vehicles should be 100%, um, like what the state of California has announced. And the reason for that, let me say that a lot has changed since the Obama 2025 program took place, and I'm very proud of that program. I was one of the lead, you know, uh, people working on on this program. But since that program, a lot of changes have happened. And let me just say what has happened. First, uh, as we know, the battery cost has dropped by 85 uh, percent. The cost parity of an EV with a an, with a gasoline um, car should come about should be the same in maybe by 2022 20, 2024 time frame. We have seen the range of electric vehicles going anywhere from 120 miles to 400 miles. It's it's amazing what the industry is investing over $340 billion globally to 2030. And, uh, you know, each one of the comp, we've seen company after company committing to phasing out um, the internal combustion engine. And last week we saw the EU, a uh, pretty historic announcement that one of their 12 proposals uh, it deals with uh, cars and they're looking to phase out um, the internal combustion engine by 2035. And let's not forget um, that we know even more now than we knew when President Obama was in office about the tremendous um, risks that the planet is facing and all of us are facing as part of climate change. Last week, um, horrific horrific pictures uh, from Germany. Um, you know, it's just another reminder what we're all of us dealing with, that nobody's safe. So if the President... Um, is is really serious about meeting his commitment for climate change, Uh, he must set uh, a goal beyond 2026 uh, to phase out the internal combustion engine uh, with the hope that we can fight climate change and do our part as a country.
0: Yes, absolutely, and a uh, really helpful overview there. Um, one quick thing just for our listeners, um, NITSA NHTSA is an uh, acronym for the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. They're under Department of Transportation, and they set concurrent regulations on fuel economy. So there are two standards, effectively, one that uh, deals with the tailpipe emissions. That's what EPA uh, has jurisdiction over, and then NHTSA has jurisdiction over the fuel economy, but they do have to converge and reflect each other. Is that correct?
1: Well, yes. They have to use their own um, authority. As you said, uh, NHTSA's Nitsa, authority comes from, other, um, from EPCA. This is the Energy Policy Conservation Act. The, main, um, uh, the priority for EPCA is energy security, um, and obviously, under the Clean Air Act, uh, uh, what EPA uh, has to do is to protect public health and environment. So both agencies have worked together and can work together uh, to, set, um, to set the standards. But let me say this. with this, uh, What we did under President Obama, working with um, California, uh, the Environmental Protection Agency, and NICHA, uh we, we we meaning the Clean Air Act led the way uh, because ideally, if a company meets the requirements under the Clean Air Act of reducing greenhouse gas emissions, they should be meeting uh, the, uh, the requirements under EPCA. And I'll leave it at that because that could take hours to explain. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, I imagine. Yeah, no, and that's a helpful clarification. Um, so just to kind of recap... Uh, First step or priority for EPA right now is to roll back the Trump administration rollbacks of the Obama-era clean car standards and put forward a revised, updated rule that deals with models uh, 2023 through 2026. That's cars that are manufactured during the years of 2023 and 2026. And those standards still uh, yet to be seen, what will come out, but we're expecting them to be... Um, Slightly, potentially a little bit more uh, rigorous than what California has, uh, and could even go beyond that. But really, the next big thing that we want to kind of focus on and hope to see out of the EPA is is the next generation of standards beyond that that really looks at how to phase out um, internal combustion engines and prioritize all electric and other clean vehicles. Is that did I capture everything?
1: Absolutely. And again, one more thing that I want to add is that EPA's job is setting post-2026 greenhouse gas standards. It has been made much easier with the an announcement that we had from Ford uh, on, you know, globally they expect to phase out um, the internal combustion engine by 2030, um, General Motors uh, phasing out the internal combustion engine in 2035. Um, Volkswagen has made a commitment that by um, 2035, uh, globally, they're going to be phasing out the internal combustion engine. Volkswagen has said that in Europe, 70% of vehicles that they're going to sell will be electric vehicles. In the U.S., 50% of those vehicles will be electric vehicles. So (laughs) what I'm saying is, that you don't have to be Tesla we don't. Ha- we should not be looking just for Tesla to support an ambitious uh, program by the White House uh, towards electrification the industry is there so we need level playing field we need the companies to be able to go to their boards and ask for investment and that has to be done as an announcement that hopefully President Biden and the White House should, be, should make Um July timeframe about the long-term requirements that need to be taken place under the Clean Air Act to address climate change from cars and trucks.
0: Great. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, I want to ask one more question of you, Margo, and then I want to switch gears and talk a little bit about some of the state-level activity. Uh, for stakeholders that are wanting to perhaps weigh in with public comments or make more formal comments... Uh, during the rulemaking that's that's on the horizon, or the several rulemakings that are on the horizon. Uh, any advice or insight to share uh, to help them be as informed about their involvement as possible? Uh,
1: th- that's a great question, Sarah. Thank you. Uh, you know, people very often t- say, well, what can I do? I'm just an individual. Well, there's a lot you can do as an individual you know, send comments, even send a, a, a small card, you know, or an email to EPA and basically tell EPA that, you know, what they need to do for 23 to 26, and the fact that they should do, do more. It, it, is the, it is the future of all of us, and especially future generations. So not one individual set of comments from an individual uh, is lost, I, think uh, the numbers are important. And obviously, we expect NGOs to do that, you know, the non-governmental organizations. That's very important. But also individual, individuals have a responsibility uh, to also um, tell EPA and this White House what they need to do. Um, the, <laughs> and as much as I love President Biden, they need to walk the talk.
0: Absolutely. And, and just to kind of point out as well, uh, because this is a quasi-judicial uh, format for, for decision making, um, it, it effectively these comments all go on the record, the public record, and they're used as evidence to support and or justify whatever standards are, are finally adopted. Yeah. So, you know, base your arguments in facts and provide any you know, resources or reports, you know, it's it's important to speak from the heart, but also if you have, you know, good information you can put forward in these comments, um, it really helps the rulemaking process be as informed as possible.
1: But, but also again, you know, public, you know, don't expect um, an average citizen that lives let's say in Los Angeles or somewhere in Minnesota to have a lot of technical data but they breathe the air. they sing the extreme weather conditions. I can I cannot tell you how much it really counts to hear from individuals. Time after time when I was working at EPA and, and we briefed the White House and we briefed EPA administrators, uh, the fact that we had 1,000 individuals asking us to do certain things, it was important. It does does count.
0: Well, that's great. And I'm really glad to hear that as somebody who's taken time out of my life at many moments to file comments along those lines so that's great to know that it's it's noted and appreciated um, by the agencies and by the staff who are doing this um, Margo, this was super helpful and we're not we're not quite done with the conversation on on the federal actions but I do want to shift gears and um, ask Anjali to uh, tell us a bit more about your work at fresh energy and what you're doing in Minnesota and then we'll dive into the story of the uh, Clean Cars Minnesota rule. So first, I'll let you kind of introduce yourself. Great. Thank you so
2: much. Um, Wonderful listening in to hear such deep experience in this area. Uh, I myself am only almost about two years into electric transportation. I actually came from the solar development and financing sector before um, coming into a nonprofit advocacy Arena. So this has all been an incredibly exciting time to join this space, given how much is happening. So, uh, you know, as you mentioned in that great intro, Fresh Energy is a clean energy nonprofit that's advocating for policies to accelerate Minnesota's transition to a carbon free economy in a manner that benefits all Minnesotans. We've been around for more than 25 years, and also as you mentioned, we work primarily as technical experts in several decision making arenas, which include uh, the state legislature regulatory bodies like state agencies or public utilities commission, as well as um, talking to and kind of advising local governments. So we work in many sectors, including electricity generation, building, heating, energy efficiency, and of course, my own area of expertise, transportation. And so I am leading our electric transportation program work. And I'm often actually writing comments in two things, like the public utilities commission on Propose EV programs for utilities, um, or getting involved in rulemaking like Clean Cars Minnesota.
0: Great. Well, I'm very familiar with Fresh Energy, and uh, think the world of all the staff there. It's a great organization, and you guys are doing excellent work across uh, many fora and lots of topics. Uh, so let's talk about the Minnesota Clean Cars standard, and in particular uh, the. <laughs> this, the story behind uh, what, what's gone on there and where things stand. So I'll let you uh, give the overview for li- our listeners and um, give us the update of where things are at this moment.
2: Wonderful. Yeah, it, it is a long story, <laughs> but I will do my best to keep it uh, succinct. So for those who are listening and aren't familiar, Clean Cars Minnesota refers to the overall effort to adopt what's called Clean Car Standards here in Minnesota And we were doing it by way of a state agency rulemaking. Um, Clean car standards are really a collection of two policies. The low emission vehicle standard, uh, which seeks to tighten up tailpipe emission standards for all vehicles, including gasoline vehicles. That's the first part. And then the zero emission vehicle standard, which is really seeking to require automakers to deliver more essentially electric vehicles to a state um, with that number increasing year over year. So, we here at Fresh Energy, we have been pushing for Minnesota to adopt clean car standards on and off for actually about 13 years. I found that out this spring. We've been involved in this for 13 years. Um, so we and many others were really pleased when the governor announced that Minnesota would be pursuing clean car standards back in September 2019. So almost two years ago, actually. It all started off really well with the informal public comment period yielding over 2,000 responses in favor of clean car standards, For a variety of reasons, we saw people submitting comments saying that they were looking forward to the climate benefits of electric vehicles, meaning the reduced greenhouse gas emissions, um, from the health benefits, from reduced transportation pollution, and of course, from the increased EV availability that would happen as a result of these standards. Around this time, we were also able to stand up a coalition, the Minnesotans for Clean Cars, which was comprised of a large number of different organizations, both local and nationally, and was able to set up a really cogent structure for both running a public campaign, getting responses, and of course, getting involved in the technical comments and analysis. Just as we thought the formal rulemaking would begin, though, which was, you know, we kind of expected it to officially kick off in about February March 2020, a few things happened. The first was the global pandemic, which definitely led to a delay in um, moving forward with a formal rulemaking portion. And the second as as you kind of discussed, was the Trump administration's rollback of federal tailpipe emission standards. Both these things led the agency overseeing the process to redo some of their analysis. You throw in a federal election, and the formal rulemaking didn't actually kick off until really the beginning of this year. So we really had almost a year and three months from when the first announcement was made about clean cars Minnesota to when the formal rulemaking began. And the reason why that's significant is that the formal rulemaking was really when all the evidence and analysis would be gathered so that the judge overseeing the whole process, um, was referred to as a Ministry of Law judge, would take all the evidence and analysis submitted, look at it, and be able to make a decision as to whether or not Clean Cars Minnesota would benefit Minnesotans and should move forward. So by the time the formal rulemaking began earlier this year, our coalition was stronger than ever in speaking about clean car standards, Uh, but so unfortunately was the opposition in spreading misinformation. So in Minnesota, opposition to Clean Cars Minnesota really came from our dealers association with support and funding from the oil and gas interests, of course. Um, They really took the opportunity for the delay to build up a really persistent and coordinated misinformation campaign that included things like op-eds and letters to the editors and advertisements um, and general fear-mongering over what these rules would do. For instance, we often heard heard remarks made that, you know, this meant the minister was banning all gasoline vehicles, that your farming equipment would have to be electric, that all trucks would become electric, you know, things like that, where really took the relatively limited scope of what the clean car standards were, and expanded it to really seem like a revolutionary sort of policy, when in reality, it's a It's an important, but very pragmatic and sort of the first step sort of policy that we would need to take to support a transition to electric vehicles. Uh, Unfortunately, this sort of fear mongering ended up coming up in our state legislative sessions as well. And we actually had a few lawmakers really try their best to stop the agency from adopting these standards, despite there being a really clear statutory authority for this agency to do so. The agency overseeing the process was our pollution control agency, and there was a statute from 1967 that gave that agency authority to adopt maximum emission standards for different types of pollution, including from vehicles. So there really wasn't a question whether or not this agency could do the rulemaking, but there were some lawmakers who just felt that it was overstepping and um, clean cars should be stopped at all costs. So when the rulemaking officially began, we were doing a few things. We were running our own public campaign on what these standards really were doing. We were defending the standards at our state legislature. And then, of course, we were submitting our own technical analysis and support and gathering other responses from the public to submit into this rulemaking. The good news is that information and the larger EV zeitgeist was on our side, and we were able to gather over 14,000 responses in support of Clean cars, Minnesota, I think this rulemaking gained the most responses of any rulemaking the state has had, actually. So it gives you a sense of how big of a of a thing and momentous occasion it became um, over the course of the last two years. Fast forward to May, and all of our hard work paid off when the administrative law judge issued a ruling in favor of Clean Cars Minnesota, which set us up to be the 15th state in the U.S. to adopt clean car standards and the first state in the Midwest to have these standards. We also managed to get to the end of our legislative session without clean cars being stopped. So now we are just awaiting some final procedural steps before we can say we are officially formally adopted these standards. And we expect that rule finalization to happen by the end of the summer.
0: Whew. That is quite a story (laughs) and quite the saga. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, all in all really, really exciting to, to know the outcome and that, you know, all that work paid off. Um, I mean, I'm sure you have a lot of insights to share, but I'm I'm wondering if, based on the experience uh, in Minnesota, which I'm sure other states have had similar uh, trials and tribulations, what advice would you offer to other states or regional organizations that are working to push for the adoption of a, a similar clean card standard?
2: Yeah, definitely. I think one of the you know one of the most exciting part of being involved in Clean Cards in Minnesota is I've had the the opportunity because of my connection with some of the national groups to support and share some of the resources and learnings we've had from Clean Cars Minnesota with other states that are pursuing it, um, such as Virginia, that had a successful legislative session that directed their state agencies to adopt clean car standards. Um, so that's definitely been a highlight of going through this and knowing that some of that learning is going to move forward to others who can hopefully learn from what <laughs> we had to go through. But I would say the four things I would pass along to any state considering this is, one, the importance of a public campaign and communication strategy on what the standards do and don't do as early as possible to as many people as possible. Uh, Once someone hears a falsehood, it's really hard to dislodge it, even if you end up talking to them. It just takes a lot more time to convince someone that what they heard wasn't true, rather than if you can get in there and let them know, hey, this is what the standards are doing. No, they're they're not doing it. X, Y, Z, just because this other group says it's actually a pretty pretty pragmatic first small step towards something. It is not changing the system overnight. You know, that definitely became really apparent as we were going through this and we just had to um, ramp up that own process as we saw the misinformation that was flying around. Uh, This is supported by the second big point, which is having a broad coalition of many interests um, because then you have a lot of different partners with different perspectives that can go out to their various communities and educate them on what the clean car standards are and how supporting it will yield benefits that are pertinent to that um, particular interest group. So for instance, we had a huge coalition representing faith and business, climate and conservation, rural, health, labor, and of course, clean energy. So as I mentioned, that really helped us divvy up the tasks and promote the many benefits to different audiences. They were also really instrumental in gathering the many supportive responses we had for this rulemaking, and keeping up momentum and support to both the state agency overseeing it and the administration, so that you know we could tell them, hey, you have all these groups supporting you to keep pushing on pursuing the stand, these standards. You know, we weren't sure, especially with the delay of the pandemic and um, the rollback of the tailpipe emission standards, if if the administration would drop this. So it's really it was really key to have so many so many people paying attention, so many organizations invested to be able to support the governor and the agency to continue on with that formal rulemaking. We also had immense support and involvement from national partners like Natural Resource Defense Council, and they really proved instrumental in helping us become the technical experts uh, so we can pass along to local partners. The fourth thing that's related to the first one on public campaign is really making sure lawmakers are educated on what the standards do. As I mentioned, we had to parry off legislative attacks. And while there's no way of knowing if outreach earlier to these particular lawmakers would have deterred them, making sure as many lawmakers as possible know what the clean car standards are means that you just have that many more lawmakers who are able to defend and promote clean car standards in the session and can actually speak to what they're hearing and um, respond and make sure that doesn't get further than than that conversation. And you know, by the end of the last two years, I would say there's a lot of lawmakers who know what clean car standards are, and we now have, you know, an increased capacity and willingness to talk about electric vehicles and the importance of these sort of standards in our state legislature that we didn't have before Clean Cars Minnesota. The final thing that we really learned as a result of this process was reaching out to possible opponents or folks like dealerships ahead of time can really help undercut or mitigate some of their concerns you know as i'm talking about this and i am mentioning misinformation campaign there is there is some you know bad actors involved who clearly weren't going to respond either way to us get you know giving outreach and trying to tell them what the clean car standards were but we we did find them we talked to a few dealers about clean cars minnesota actually was we could get them to at least understand that what we were proposing was not revolutionary but rather a a small but significant first step to support a transition to electric vehicles, a transition that they knew was already beginning, um, and that a rule like this might accelerate slightly in a place like Minnesota, but wouldn't necessarily bring change overnight, so you know those four buckets are the t- kind of advice I would give to a state pursuing this
0: that is really really helpful and and all really great insights and um you know I think the last point that you make is is really important because um it it kind of ties in with that public campaign and the strategy, but making sure the impacted stakeholders really understand what's happening, what it means, what it will mean for them. Uh, I read something that uh, kind of struck me, and, and it's relatively straightforward when you think about it, but, you know, one of the motivations for this rule is that Minnesota does not currently have that many EVs available in the market. And so part of this was... Uh, kind of about being able to expand consumer options and get more options on the uh, the dealer floors so that people have uh, mm-hmm. the ability to buy an EV if they want one. So, you know, that's, that speaks to what dealers are thinking about, auto dealers. And so I think that kind of full circle conversation is really important. Exactly. Great. Well, it's quite a story, and I'm sure there are many steps on the horizon um, What's next in Minnesota on clean transportation?
2: Yeah. So, you know, one of the other benefits of doing this sort of really intense public campaign is we now have a coalition that had been advocating for clean cars in Minnesota, but really got good at talking about electric vehicles. So we are figuring out what is the next big policy item we all want to work on. What's the next campaign we all be want to be working on. There's a lot of good options, um, you know, alongside electrifying passenger cars and trucks, we've talked about in our state, how do we support electrification of our buses, both transit and school buses, as there is across the nation in Minnesota, there's, there's a lot of interest from the general public, especially in electrifying school buses. And there was legislation proposed this session that would have supported the purchase of electric transit buses and electric school buses that didn't end up passing, but we have, we gained some good ground and we're hoping to continue to pursue that next year. We're also considering how might we get Minnesota to sign on to the zero emission vehicle medium and heavy duty memorandum understanding that I believe 15 other states have signed to date and is being overseen by NESCOM. I forget the acronym <laughs> for NESCOM, but it's it's a group based in northeast, uh, Northeastern USA who is overseeing this sort of electric vehicle electrification effort around medium and heavy duty vehicles across the US. And we think an effort like that would be really useful because while a lot is known around passenger vehicle electrification, less is known around how do we get that same result in the medium and heavy duty space. So having that network of support and resources would be really helpful to, to us at advocates in Minnesota as a state. And, of course, we're continuing to support electric utilities and in proposing innovative EV programs to support their customers in purchasing electric vehicles. Um, and we're especially trying to figure out how to get more public charging out there to support EV purchases by folks like myself who live in old multifamily buildings and are renters. Mm-hmm. So working on the typically gnarly challenges that we have in electric transportation space.
0: <laughs> no shortage of things to do, for sure. Um, I want to I actually touch on that last point with respect to the heavy-duty vehicle market. And Margo, maybe you can jump in here to give your perspective. What's needed to move the dial on the heavy-duty market and and medium and heavy-duty trucks in particular? Passenger vehicles, there's a lot more models, there's a lot more familiarity, but the medium and heavy-duty space, it's a little bit more uh, difficult to to gain traction and and get more models in the market. So, um, Margot, your thoughts on on how to really move that space forward more quickly?
1: Yeah. So first of all, I want to say that I fully support um, Nadja's comment about the importance of having uh, a multi kind of facet uh, outreach um, and the amount of disinformation that is out there. I mean, you know. Um, The oil industry and others have gotten a lot of lessons from the tobacco industry. So, you know, having state, local, and federal efforts, learning from what, you know, what happened with the tobacco industry all these years, and trying to get the information out in a very effective way that, you know, electric cars are not going to replace your mother's car. You're all not going to have to be in a small, tiny little car. I think that's very, very effective. Uh, as far as trucks, you know, um, trucks are very different uh, than, than than personal vehicles uh, because trucks do, you know, commute and move across states. Um, in the past, EPA has taken the lead in setting um, federal standards, working, you know, closely with the state of California, and at the end of the process, California adapted those programs. Uh, unfortunately, under the Trump administration, uh, California um, had to move forward in uh, taking steps to both push for more stringent knock standards and also for the greenhouse gas standards. Uh, I'm very happy to see that state after state, um, especially, you know, you know, encouraged by Nescom, uh, is um, adapting um, that the, the California. A clean track program. EPA is in the process of proposing, hopefully by the end of the year, uh, a very stringent NOx standard in following what California has done. And as part of that effort, my hope is and expectation is that the agency uh, will rethink the existing second phase of track greenhouse gas standards uh, that put in place under President um, uh, Obama. And by doing that, the agency is going to recognize a couple of things. One and more important is that a, a number of manufacturers are moving forward um, to introduce electric trucks, especially in the area of medium duty. Uh, states like California and others are adopting uh, greenhouse gas vendors for trucks and the agency can work with those states in California and the industry to move forward, not just for NOx reductions, but also for greenhouse gas reductions. So we should expect to see an action by the agency uh, by the end of the year on that.
0: That's great and very important, um, just because, of course, these are the the most polluting vehicles we have on the road today. And uh we got to move quickly to clean them up, not just from a climate standpoint, but from a public health standpoint. Um, also, just a m- quick note: NOx stands for um, oxides of nitrogen, and uh, they're common um, pollutants coming out of tailpipes, as well as uh, industrial facilities and power plants and and the like. So, um, well, we've we've covered a lot in a relatively short amount of time, and unfortunately, we are. Uh, getting close to the top of the hour, so I want to wrap us up here, though there's tons to explore in both spaces. Uh, I'm going to ask you both this question and and look forward to getting both of you to respond. Um, What bold action would you like to see from either the federal government or state governments within the next five years that would really help propel clean electric transportation? And Anjali, I'll start with you. Yeah, definitely. This is a great question.
2: You know, This is going to sound like a trite answer because there is effort to do this already, but I would really love for both the federal and state governments in the next five years to fully electrify their fleets for a couple of reasons. One, it just gets EVs out on the road so people can see them. It also uh, provides these automakers and other groups who are making the electric vehicles some, um, you know, they, they can be committed to be able to sell their vehicles to these entities. So it gives some certainty about where the market is so they can better invest in those those technologies. So I would really love for federal and state governments to go all in on electrification and just get them out there so people can see that, yes, they do work, and yes, they can make sense.
0: Absolutely. And from a total cost of ownership standpoint, it makes a lot of sense because EVs uh, have a much Mm -hmm. lower cost of operation over time. Margot, what about you? What bold action would you like to see from either federal or state governments?
1: Yes, first of all, a couple of thoughts. The, uh, President Biden has made an announcement that the General uh, um, Service Administration, this is the, the office within the federal government that uh, purchases vehicles, they have to go electric. So that would be a big deal. Um, I would love to see EPA again. Finalizing standards to phase out gasoline cars by 2035, and finalizing standards to phase out medium and heavy-duty trucks by 2040. And as the federal government is undertaking this effort, um, I would very much like to see the agency focusing on communities that of color uh, and impoverished communities. That has suffered because of high, uh, air pollution, uh, in those, in those neighborhoods. Uh, and we know that people that live around ports, um, bath, um, uh, stops, um, highways, I just mentioned a few, um, are se- severely exposed to air pollution. Uh, and there is a huge inequity when it comes to that. So my hope is the state, federal, local, um, efforts we have a special um, focus uh, to address um, air pollution in 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 these neighborhoods.
0: Absolutely, and we've touched on that in, in prior episodes, but uh, always great to keep the equity and environmental justice issues front of mind and prioritized as part of all of these policy conversations. Uh, well, Anjali, Margot, it's been a pleasure to speak with you both. I'm so thrilled to uh no, you're both out there doing incredible work and um, having such an important impact in this space. So thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Sarah. Thank you so much. Thank you, Likewise.
0: And Electrify This is an Energy Innovation original podcast. Energy Innovation is a nonpartisan climate policy firm. Our mission is to accelerate clean energy by promoting the most effective energy policies provide research and analysis for decision-makers to accelerate the transition to a low-carbon future. You can find more information about Energy Innovation, the podcast, and our guests at energyinnovation.org forward slash electrify this. Please continue to subscribe, follow, give us a review, share with your friends and family, and tag us on social, hashtag electrify this. And as always, I'd like to give a shout-out to our sound engineer, Rowan Stigner, and the Audio Inn in Salt Lake City. Thanks again for listening. I'm your host, Sarah Baldwin, and you're plugged in to electrify this.